Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. This is the 23rd sermon in our series on the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, and our text this evening is Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. That's page 6 in your pew Bible. Now, last Lord's Day, Bishop Julia was with us, and he encouraged us in the preaching to consider the certainty of God's word, that feelings are fleeting, but the scripture is secure. He highlighted in his examination of Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 22, how God remembered Noah and his family, that that remembrance focused down onto a specific month and day. What we look to as random in God's act of redemption, we find that his love for us would never fail. We found as well how he would never again destroy God's earth by flood, even if the intention of man's heart is evil. He told us that these various specific times in the history of redemption always come at the right time. He also asked us to ponder this carefully, that our understanding of the nature of sin and its infection of the totality of humanity will directly reflect our grasp of God's saving work in Christ. Our need is so great that even the infant in its mother's arms is in need of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. Bishop Julian also reminded us of the fact that Noah's first act was one of worship. He builds an altar and makes an offering of thanksgiving upon it for their deliverance from the judgment of the flood. And so Julian challenged us to ask what priority we place upon worship every day. Where indeed does our day begin? He then reminded us how faithful our Heavenly Father truly is. That as long as the earth remains, he promises that the patterns of the seasons and his provision to sustain us physically through the fruit of the earth in its season will never end. And so we come to our text this evening. This is a time, really, where the chapter division can be unhelpful to us because Moses, having set in place this renewed creation, God's promise and God's faithfulness, the certainty of his providence in the many seasons, he now underlines the extent to which he will use this as the platform to secure our salvation. He gathers them all together in what has become known as the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. Now this one is very significant because it is the first since the fall of our first parents. And in it, our Heavenly Father sets a structure. In other words, he gives us what we would call our political life, 
Now, not political in a modern sense of the word, but rather in its original, its ancient sense, establishing the structures of our relationships one to the other in the commonwealth of humanity, how we will relate to the animal world and to creation, how we will relate to one another, and how indeed we will relate to God, the author of it all. In other words, what is common to all mankind is addressed here. It's the biblical principle that is later called common grace, the benefits of this political life that are gifted to the whole human race. Now, this covenant is God's covenant. It's one he pronounces and promises to fulfill. In other words, it is unilateral. And we discover as we go through the course of the scriptures that all of his covenants that are grounded in his plan to save us are likewise unilateral in its scope. Why do I say it that way? Because, well, it's undeserved. We've learned that we deserve judgment. Because, as God has just said, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So let's examine, then, the foundation of this political life that we have in this covenant with Noah and its hallmarks or character. First, the foundation. The foundation of God's covenant is God's response to Noah's thanksgiving and offering in one of grace. Grace is first. Though man has not changed, though he will still naturally, because of its, his sin nature, gravitate towards sin, God will not again curse the ground anymore. Despite man's sin, God's elected to be gracious here and forbearing. God responds to Noah's sacrifice with grace for reasons totally known to him at this point. We see it then further revealed to us as the rest of scripture unfolds for us. Today we all live under the mantle of God's grace, those who are gathered into the body of Christ, indeed those who would curse God with fist held up to heaven, all of them do not get what they deserve, but rather God provides for them. The next hallmark of God's covenant with us is exactly that, his providential care of creation that will enable our original great commission given to our first parents to be taken up again. Notice how in verses 1 to 2, God repeats the blessings he first gave to our first father, Adam. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God charges Noah's family to multiply and by implication to exercise that same stewardship over the earth. That same mandate is still in force. But notice there is now a change. God begins to use creation as the great schoolroom for humanity to begin to learn more and more of their need. There's a qualification in terms of the testimony of creation. 
concerning our sin nature, the very thing that Noah and his family carried with them into this restored creation after the flood. You see it there. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now notice how as the successors of Noah and his family, those of us here today, as we fill the earth and our stewardship spreads, we're, in, we're advised that while our first parents enjoyed a relationship with the animals, the animals now have a fear of man after the flood that did not exist before. Humans are feared because they bring judgment. They bring death to creation. The next item of testimony that we gain from creation is this focus on the blood. Humans are exhorted to eat the flesh of animals, but such permission again is qualified in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now what in the world is all that about? What we learn here is that life itself is not in the hands of men and women. Humans do not have wholesale rights over God's creatures because their life is God's possession, is God's gift. In other words, we are to not abuse creation. We are to respect it and to care for it. And the reason for this, respect for life, and beyond that, we have a respect then for the giver of life. So you see, my dear friends, our work to care for creation ultimately gives an acknowledgement to the author of creation, the gift of God. Life is in the blood, we see here. God is the giver of life. Disregard for the gift of life is an affront to the giver of life. We can see as well, can't we hear, in the course of the scriptures that follow, how this command against eating blood prepares humanity in this great schoolroom of creation to appreciate the use of blood in sacrifice because it is seen as a gift. It is God's gift in atonement. We make the sacrifice, but it is God by that blood gift that forgives We can then see, can't we, why the lifeblood of the Lamb of God is God's atoning gift to us. As the letter to the Hebrews, that great sermon, makes so clear, these sacrifices of themselves cannot atone for sin. Rather, it brought us to the fact that a true sacrifice, a final sacrifice, must be given in God's anointed, in God's Son. So we have the reality of God's grace as a foundation. We have this testimony, this school of creation, and the fear of the animals, and the respect we must bestow upon them in terms of the author of life, 
gather together now under the blood because the next point, the building block here of the covenant is a respect for human life. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, we know from what we've studied in the generations before God's judgment in the flood, that not only was humanity thoroughly corrupted, but the earth was what? Filled with violence, verse 13 of chapter 6. Murder, violence against the weak, especially against women, indeed, the very deaths, was a whole hum everyday experience. We saw how such violent men, Nephilim, were men of renown. Now, after the flood, we find that God places a restriction here. As Noah's descendants had the potential to descend to the same levels of violence. Therefore, the Lord moved in his speech from a respect of animal life to a respect for human life. No sin has greater contempt for life than the murder of another human being. There's an ascending order here, isn't there, from lesser to greater. Animal's blood may be shed, but not consumed, but human blood must not be shed. You see how there's an important theological point here that we may miss? Indeed, we find it in a way hidden in the translation, but is clear in the original. It's in the second half of verse 5. From his fellow man, I require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, in the original... God demands from his fellow man, in the original, it's his brother, a reckoning for the life of man. Now, do you see the point here? Because from his brother echoes what? The first human murder, when Cain murdered his brother. But notice something deeper still. By virtue of our shared humanity in the image of God, all murder is fratricide. We are all part of one human family in the image of God. That's why our Heavenly Father then puts his law in the original in a poetic stanza so that it would be easily remembered. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, since man is created in the image of God, and as such is of immense value, since the blood, the life of man, is God's alone, therefore, to take human life is to usurp God's sovereignty over life and death and merits death itself precisely because life is so precious. Therefore, exacting judgment is a matter of political faithfulness. In other words, in terms of the relations which we have in that original sense, the relations we have one with another, all brothers and sisters 
under the image of God, with creation, humble in that authority under God, the giver of all life. So we have to be so clear here, don't we, that unjust violence against all image bearers of a holy God is condemned in the scriptures. And God also knew that certain groups of people would need even more protection than others. Widows, orphans, the poor, the prisoner. And he commands consistently all through the scriptures from Old Testament to New our immediate care of them. In James 2.6, God warns us against committing the sin of partiality. There is no distinction. And the most horrific forms of betrayal and sin are those committed within families and within churches. When the very people who are called by God to protect the small and the weak become their captors and predators. My dear friends, God hates this. He hates it. Now, certainly we live in a day when there are judicial abuses and the death penalty is sometimes racially motivated, with hatred, sometimes politically motivated, class motivated. But we must be clear here that those abuses themselves are indeed an abomination Woe, we could say with the prophets, of a system that wrongly administers justice, where judges or juries or attorneys are corrupt, who administer the death penalty wrongly. Woe to a society that allows that to happen. For anyone who may be culpable, God will not be mocked. But my dear friends, we must also realize, according to God's word, that we must not just argue against the death penalty on humane grounds, but rather to see a theological priority here. We honor God humbly, carefully, with sadness in our hearts. It is the last ultimate judgment that can be made, but we must not ignore the times when a capital decision is brought down by the courts. To ignore it is to despise life itself. This was and is God's word to a violent world. It was meant and is meant to set the boundary for human authority over human life. Your life is not yours. It is God's, the source of life. To ignore God's teaching is to descend evermore into a society of violence. Now, having given his, his exhortation about respecting life, our Heavenly Father ends his preamble of his covenant with Noah with the same words in which he began. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, multiply in it, Respect life and multiply. 
But now we come to the covenant itself, its character in verses 8 through 11. Now notice in those verses how this grand covenant was universal, unilateral, and unconditional. We've spoken already of its universality. It encompasses not only every human being, good or evil, but every living creature on the planet. It is unilateral in that God alone is the sole initiator. We know this because he twice calls it my covenant in verses 8 and verse 11. It doesn't require any assent or action or ratification from mankind, even an acknowledgement from mankind. It is unconditional because there will never be another cosmic judgment by water, no matter what we humans do. And next we see the sign of the covenant, the sign of the rainbow, repeated again and again in verses 12 through 17. Our Heavenly Father calls the rainbow his bow. Now what does this mean? We find in the scriptures, of course, the rainbow being associated with God's glory. To speak of its brightness in Ezekiel chapter 1 and to describe the light around the throne in Revelation chapter 4. In other points in the literature of the ancient world, the bow was the weapon of war. When it was taken down, it was used as judgment against the enemies of the king. Here, instead, the bow hangs in the sky with its direction turns upward as a reminder always of God's sovereignty over the earth, his glory that cannot be diminished, and the fact that he will never bring judgment by water again. Now, during early springtime, while out on my bicycle, on my way to a rural parish with my vestments in my backpack or in my saddlebag, I would often ride wearing my rain gear. And I would get caught out in the fens with insult to injury, watching the storm approach even as I cycled along. The flat fields hid nothing. And I would be in a deluge. But when it passed, Thankfully, quickly, you would often see a huge rainbow that arched across the entire sky. Sometimes it would last the entire hour as I pedaled toward a distant church tower that was my destination. You could see both ends of it, sometimes double rainbows. It was glorious. It was God's dazzling bow his universal, unilateral, unconditional sign of his grace. Now remember what we've learned so much of our study of Genesis. We are not going to get answers of science here. We all know now in the modern era what causes the rainbow in the sky scientifically. But to what extent, my dear friends, do we understand it theologically? to be reminded of what we have discovered here, of the nature of our political life. When God saw it, as he does all his bows, and he saw many, 
he remembers his covenant, which means he acted to keep his gracious promise never to flood the world again. And as believers, when we see it, we understand his patience as he waits patiently that not one sinner would be lost. Rainbows remind you and I that God's divine wrath gives way to God's grace and that judgment and providence are all part of his strange work. It reminds us, too, of the ultimate work of the new covenant when God's wrath is propitiated by his own Son on the cross so that all who are in Christ find grace instead of judgment. Indeed, Christ becomes the greater Noah, who saved his people from the waters of death by his faithful obedience and atoning sacrifice. My dear friends, there is so much we can learn here in this great covenant of God. How often do we understand our relationships outside of the body of Christ in terms which God has set here? How often do we indeed look upon the rainbow, admiring its beauty, giving thanks to the one who painted it for us across the sky as his reminder of his grace. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.